All right. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Political Mic. And I am your host, Michael Taylor. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, seriously. Welcome to the Political Mic podcast, Women's History Month Takeover. My name is Ariana Patton, the founder of the Black Girl Politico and a second year law school student at Thurgood Marshall School of Law. And I had the esteemed pleasure of serving as your moderator for this panel discussion. Um, before I get into introducing these lovely ladies uh, and the panelists, I would love to start off by telling you a little bit about Women's History Month. And then I'll be able to introduce them and then we can get into the hot topics. So Women's History Month is a celebration of women's contributions to history, culture and society and has been observed annually in the month of March in, in the United States since 1987. Women's History Month is a dedicated month to reflect on the often overlooked contributions of women to the United States history. From Abigail Adams to Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth to Rosa Parks, Shirley Chisholm to the current Vice President of the United States, Kamala, Kamala Harris, sorry. The timeline of the Women's History Milestone stretches back to the founding of the United States. The actual celebration of Women's History Month grew out of a week-long celebration of women's contributions to culture, history, and society organized by the School District of uh, Sonoma, California in 1978. Presentations were given at dozens of schools. Hundreds of students participated in a Real Woman Essay Contest, and a parade was held downtown in Santa Rosa. A few years later, the idea caught on within communities, school districts, and organizations across the country. In 1980, President Jimmy Carter issued the first presidential proclamation declaring the week of March 8th as National Women's History Week. The United States followed suit the next year, passing a resolution establishing a national celebration. Six years later, the National Women's History Project successfully petitioned Congress to expand the event to the entire month of March. So here we are today with our woman-led panel to talk about pressing issues happening in the U.S. this week. And as you know, when a woman is speaking, you need to listen because women have something to say. So let me do the honor of introducing these esteemed panelists. And we're going to start off with first with Miss Jasmine Bonner. Jasmine Bonner was born and raised in the gateway to the to the West, St. Louis, Missouri. Upon graduation from one of the one of two historically black colleges and universities in Missouri, Harris Stowe State University, Jasmine moved to Washington, D.C. to pursue a career serving the people of her hometown as a congressional intern for former Congressman William Lacey Clay Jr. After the completion of her internship, Jasmine became the staff assistant for Congressman Gerald Nadler, uh, chairman of the House Committee on the Judiciary. And then currently, Jasmine serves as a special assistant for the United States Senator, Tammy Duckworth. In addition of her time spent as a staffer in both the House and the Senate, she has also served as the Vice President for the Senate Black Legislative Staff Caucus. A 2020-2021 scholar for the American University Women in Politics We Lead program and a steadfast advocate for the success of, U of HB HBCUs, <laughs> their students, faculty, and staff. So thank you, Jasmine, for joining us today. She's also my friend, guys. <laughs> um, next, we have Maria Nasir. Uh, she's currently in her last year pursuing her JD at Howard University School of Law. She hopes to focus her work on immigration, human, and civil rights law. She obtained her English BA with minors in, in information technology and graphic design from George Mason University. Over her professional career, she went on to study abroad with her school to South Africa to take classes and intern with the judicial um, sorry, Inspector of uh, Correctional Services and worked as a student attorney at the Human and Civil Rights Clinic with the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless and uh, Casa de Maryland Incorporation. 
This past year, she built her experience with Al Otro Lado, the Democratic National Committee and the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center. She is a current uh, con student contributor to the 1619 Project Law School Initiative. She, can, she hopes to lend her time and skills to public service in line with Charles Hamilton Houston's vision of social engineering. Thank you, Maria, for joining us today. All right, so next we have Dania Henry. Dania is a third year law school student at Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, DC. Dania enrolled in law school as a tool to serve marginalized communities, including low income communities and communities of color. Dania's uh, legal advocacy experience includes criminal justice reform, immigrant rights, sexual assault victims of color, and health equity for boys and girls of color domestically and international. Dania has interned with groups like the ACLU, Healing Justice, Georgetown Law Center's on, uh, Center on Poverty and Inequality, and International Women's Rights Clinic. Dania in, intends to continue her policy and legal advocacy domestically and internationally for marginalized communities after graduating law school. Thank you, for, thank you, Dania, for coming today and sharing your insights on this panel. All right, we have Ms. Cassandra Knopf. She is a She's a three at, at uh, Howard University School of Law. She's passionate about politics and justice from, from a young age, and she began engaging in the civil process by writing to the president to protest the uh, Iraq regions at age eight. Recently, this translated into a passion for feminist civil rights law and specifically environmental justice. Cassandra has interned with the uh, representative's office on Capitol Hill and worked for an environmental nonprofit based in Maryland and held a position this past fall at the Environmental Protection Agency. She is excited to bring her energy to the legal profession after graduating this May. And that, last, we have Corey Evans. Corey graduated from Campbell University in 2017 with a degree in business administration and tw in 2019 from the Regent University of Law where she earned her JD. She passed the bar exam in February and is incredibly honored to be admitted to the practice of law in the great state of North Carolina. Although she's no longer involved in politics, she takes advocacy and activism very seriously and enjoys serving the Wilmington, North Carolina community in various ways and with various organizations. And so, we have all of our panelists and I want to say thank you all again for joining us today and I'm super excited to hear about these conversations. And oh, um, other two panelists might be in the last days that haven't been added. Okay. okay. One second. You're muted. Sorry about that. Okay, so before we get into the conversations today, um, I just want to know a little bit about yourself, uh, about each and every one of you. And so I want you uh, to tell me a little bit about why um, you, like who or what sparked your passion to enter into the field of politics? Anyone can take this question. I really want to hear from each and every one of you actually. I guess I can start. Um, so I sort of on and off have been interested in politics since I was a kid. Um, the first time I remember being interested in politics was uh, 
as I said before, I wrote to the president because I was upset that he was threatening to invade Iraq. And I took it very personally when he did. Um, but uh, there was another instance, actually, when John Kerry was running for president, he actually filmed his uh, campaign video in front of my house in New Hampshire. So I got to go out in front and meet him and shake his hand. I was like seven at the time. And uh, yeah, it was it was very formative. It was uh, pretty interesting. It, it turned out uh, that his wife was more interesting to talk to than he was. Um, but that was actually also very formative. So <laughs> in the spirit of women's month. <laughs> okay, um, well, I'll go next. Um, so I, I feel like um, a lot of people um, don't really try to get involved in politics. They try to become advocates because something has happened or they've seen different things that have transpired and they're like, you know what, I don't like that. So I'm going to go ahead and use my voice to uplift and try to, you know, bring uh, awareness to this stuff in my community. Um, and that's what happened for me. So um, like Ariana said, I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I went to college there, went to high school there, lived there my entire life. My entire family lives there. Um, and I was there when Mike Brown died. Um, Ferguson is literally about 10, 15 minutes away from where my grandmother lives. And, you know, um, if you're from St. Louis, you know that, you know, that's not too far from the actual like inner city. So, you know, after seeing how that rocked the St. Louis area, um, I was just thinking about different ways to get more involved. And that sparked me to run for vice president of our um, uh, student government association when I was in college. And then, you know, I pledged in a sorority and all these great different avenues transpired. And I was incredibly inspired by all of the women that like mentored me throughout college and in high school. And, um, you know, I have a degree in business and I'm like, you know, I have the gift of gab. I can talk all day long. So what is it that will I, I can do that will actually bring me some joy? And that's helping the people where I am from, bringing awareness to not only the police brutality that happens every day in St. Louis, but trying to address uh, gun violence in our community. St. Louis for a long time has been the murder capital in our country. So just finding different ways of wanting to learn how the system works and trying to bring resources to our community, that is like the real reason why I wanted to get involved with politics. And then I started watching Scandal and I was like, I wanna be like Olivia Pope. So that's what got me into DC and got me very excited about um, learning about what a fixer is and what a lobbyist is and what a chief of staff is and, you know, Coming from St. Louis and not knowing what a lot of that stuff was, I was in awe. And um, yeah, this is why I call DC home now, and that is why I'm actively engaged in politics. I can go. So um, I'm from Pakistan originally, and when my family moved here, I just grew up watching my dad watch the news. Um, and then even at that time, I was really disconnected, just really passive as I grew up, just like getting most of my information from my dad and, and discussing, you know, just social justice issues with him. Um, but I did got into politics. So I think it was the president of Obama's presidency and then when I came into office, I just started following him a lot. Um, and then just going to school at Howard also really just has gotten me very much more involved in trying to just educate myself on that. And, and um, yeah, and it's something that I'm trying to even more expand on as I as I move forward in my political like just even professional career.
Um, so this is a great question. I, I think especially for Women's History Month, this is um, a great question to ask. Uh, I got involved in politics mainly because if you look on my law firm's website, you'll see that the reason I became a lawyer is I hear or have heard my whole life that I should stop giving my opinion so much. So I decided to make that my career, right? Giving my opinion. Um, and I really found that passion in uh, kind of what Jasmine was talking about in advocacy when I was um, in middle school, funny enough, we did a mock government at what we, it was Maggie Walker was our governor's school um, that I went and participated in. And I'm adopted. My biological mother was 15 when she gave birth to me. And then, so for that reason, I'm obviously very passionate about pro-life issues because um, her parents actually wanted her to have an abortion and they told her that and they've told me that. And so that's really where my passion came from. Um, my dog is passionate about it too. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, just wanting to, to be a part of that and really advocate for what matters. Okay, Cash, come here. <laughs> um, yeah, I think similar to what Jasmine and, and Corey both said, uh, my interest in politics and um, why I'm in law school now is to be an advocate. Um, and for me, it's also personal. Uh, I think growing up um, with a single mother and having seeing her advocate for myself, and my brother and herself all of the time and um, sort of preaching a message of like where you've come from, what you have, it doesn't determine who you are and you can always um, grow and advocate for yourself and make the life that you, you've dreamed up for yourself. And even if um, other people may not be able to respect it, you can always find respect in yourself and you should always um, respect other people. And uh, from young, we would, even though we didn't have much, we were always giving away our old clothes and handing it over to other families or giving it to Goodwill. And I think having that model for me inspired me to always want to give what I can, do what I can. Um, and I've always been blessed with, um, I guess, being good at school and being able to understand things pretty pretty quickly and um, analyze situations. And um, I noticed it in high school and thought that I was gonna maybe become an engineer and was pretty good at math, so I was gonna do that. Um, but I, I really thought about it and I prayed about it and I felt led to use those, um, those talents in uh, advocating for other people. Um, and so, yeah, once I went to college, I, that was my entrance into politics and law. And I found that it just is where I felt home and I've loved doing it. And um, it really is like a, a passion and part of my purpose for me. Uh, being able to use everything in me to um, speak up for other people and give give people a platform to speak up for themselves and um, sort of take away some of the structures that are in place to keep the status quo and the power dynamics that um, I know, especially all of us as women have experienced and especially as a black woman, I've experienced that. So um, yeah, that's how I got involved, honestly, just seeing my mom being an advocate and then in high school being exposed to um, politics and law and, and realizing that that might be a path for me to use my talents. Thank you all of you so much for 
um, I love hearing your stories. Uh, it's it's so funny because I feel like I relate to each and every one of you, especially, you know, you, Dania and Jasmine, like my mom uh, was like, you know, my major influence into why I wanted to go into politics. I remember being like five or six and she used to force all of our, like all of, I have a, a brother and a sister and she would force us to watch CNN. And then right after, you know, CNN went off, she would make us stand up and say, okay, now give me three facts that you learned today. And we're just all like, well, we didn't know this was a test, but you know, it, it helped me to understand that, you know, there's, you know, pressing issues that's going on, not just in our home, not within our community, but in, you know, internationally. Um, and so that kind of forced me to, you know, just not feel like, as you all said, like being an advocate, not to just be an advocate for, for me and my community, but to be an advocate for communities beyond. Um, and so it's always great to, you know, hear different people's story and hear why they are so passionate about what they're doing. So thank you guys so much. And so now we're gonna go into the pressing topics. Um, and we're gonna get a little, it's gonna get a little deep. Um, and so so today uh, we're gonna kind of talk about something that's a little heavy. Um, within the past two weeks, America has experienced two major tragedies uh, due to gun violence. And so just to start off, my heart and prayers go out to the families, uh, to the victims of the families, um, you know, that were a part of the shootings. Um, and I can I can only imagine, you know, how they're feeling. And so I, I really want to stress the fact that my, my heart and prayer goes out to those families. Um, and so on Tuesday, March 16th, the gunman shot and killed eight people, six of them um, being women of uh, Asian descent at three spas in Atlanta, Georgia. And just this Monday in Boulder, Colorado, a gunman shot and killed 10 people, including a police officer. And that, that makes this the, six, the second mass shooting in the United States in uh, less than a week. And so, you know, as I was kind of, um, you know, doing my research and figuring out, you know, what are the, what was the media saying about these shooters? Um, I noticed how the media really tried to humanize the shooters. And that that's seemed to be an overarching thing. You know, um, they make it seem as if, you know, you know, specifically with the gunman in Atlanta, you know, uh, the fact that they said that the motive wasn't racial and that he just had a sex addiction and, you know, he saw uh, massage parlors and it was a temptation. And, um, and and that just seems to be, you know, a thing uh, where they talk about the, the mental illnesses of, you know, the shooters. But let it be another, uh, you know, minority, that would be a totally different story. And so I was, um, they, they're just really trying to make them to be relatable. Um, and so I was, you know, looking on social media and I saw a tweet um, and I thought that I should bring this up or, you know, hear your thoughts on this. And it said, blaming hate crimes or mental illnesses simultaneously excuses hate crimes and stigmatizes mental illnesses. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Um, again, I'm like going to echo, um, what you said, Ariana, my thoughts and prayers are definitely with those families. Um, my thoughts and prayers are also with the Asian American community because they, over the last year, um, have been experiencing some of the worst hate in this country because of the, the, the words that were being spoken by the previous administration. And now you are still seeing it with members of Congress today right so you know those two things alone are just like horrible right um and then you experience what's going on in colorado and you think that in a year like 2021 that that would entice members of congress to say you know what even like despite the fact that we had an insurrection in january 
and Capitol Police officers were killed in the building that members of Congress go to work in every single day. You know what I'm saying? Like you're thinking about all of the different factors that continuously are happening that you think that would like prompt members of Congress to say, you know what, let's go ahead and pass some common sense legislation. It's not doing like that. No, no, it's not happening. Colorado has experienced 16 mass shootings like throughout their history. 16 mass shootings. Columbine, we all know about that shooting. That affected people in high school. I can remember being in high school and having to do those intruder drills. That is so traumatizing. That, that is creating this level of trauma that students like now are growing up to expecting that that's something that is normal and it's not. It is not normal. So it, it it's frustrating, but it's also, it's also very frustrating to think about the fact that these men are being humanized and that, oh, they, they had a bad day, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to play that card for a second. If this was a black man or a man of a different ethnic race, they would be scouring through their history, looking at their criminal records, looking at what they did when they were in high school, looking at um, whether they had a misdemeanor or something for weed. And that would be, that would be the topic that you see in the media. That would be the thing that people are talking about. Not that he had a bad day, not that his sister-in-law saw him playing with a gun or going to go buy a gun and, and having target practice in the yard. The the bad things are the things that um, that our community is often looked at and, and frowned upon are saying, you know what, we told you black people don't need these rights because of X, Y, and Z. That would be the story. So it's a little frustrating um, because there's this double standard in this country and there's a lot of hypocrisy. But, you know, at the end of the day, we had two mass shootings over the last week and people lost their lives and their families are grieving and they're hurting. Let's give them the, the peace that they need in order to move forward and not highlight these men as these troubled people with these troubled past. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of great points, Jasmine. And and to answer your question, Ariana, just really directly, I think it, it's really a complicated question and we have a lot of legal minds here. So I think the, the best answer is, right, it depends. Um, when, the, when it comes to these individuals that are making these choices, because they are making choices to engage in uh, horrific violence, I think many times mental illness does play a play a role because individuals that are in their right mind shouldn't be engaging in violence like this. Right. And so while I can certainly see the argument that it would stigmatize mental illness to a certain degree, I think if we were saying all mentally ill people are going to engage in some kind of horrific violence, of course. Right. We can all agree that that, that would, of course, stigmatize mental illness. But I think, put more succinctly, what really should be said is those that have mental illness need to be given appropriate amounts of support for whatever mental illness they have so that they are able to make choices that are better for them and those around them. Because there are different mental illnesses, and we need to recognize that anxiety is going to manifest differently than schizophrenia, which will manifest differently than schizotypal disorders, which will manifest differently than multiple personality disorders or depression. And so I think it's really more of a broad issue that was perhaps put in a tweet, you know, for maybe a little bit of 
um, a hot take because truly I think when it comes down to it, mental illness, specific mental illnesses do play a role in these mass violent events. Um, and to, to point to, to what Jasmine was saying, you know, maybe there are situations where we need to be saying, okay, why are they manifesting in white or white passing men more so than white women or black men or black women or, you know, any different race or gender? Um, I think that really is something that could be looked into and, and could potentially be kind of what Jasmine was referring to as far as common sense legislation that can lead us to a better future. I'll be honest, I'm not too sure that this issue is one that centers on mental health and mental illness. I think it's an issue of uh, white supremacy and complicity. And I do think that, you know, each person on an individual level has um, their own mental um, health struggles. We know that for the person in Georgia, he uh, claims a sexual addiction. And so that's real for each individual. But I think looking at the entire um, history of America is really important to understanding these two past shootings, mass shootings in a, the right context. And what the issue is, is one, let's look at it as um, terrorism. So first, there's, it's important to have the presumption of innocence and to correctly label correctly label things. So we don't want to rush and label things as terrorism or as hate crimes um, and risk diluting the, the worth or the weight of those, um, those terms. Um, that's important. But, but as Jasmine pointed out, depending on what race you are, you don't get that presumption of innocence. And that is a huge problem. And depending on who you are, um, the crimes that you commit are are seen and labeled differently. Like she said, if you are a black person, if it was a Muslim person, if it was an Asian person, they would be labeled as a terrorist immediately. Their history would be dug up, their name would be slandered. All of those things are true. And so yes, on an individual level, every person has issues. Every person needs support. Every person needs, needs help. But on a systemic structural level, what we're really talking about here is that white men are able to get away with the issues that they have and they don't receive support. They are just um, coddled and America is very complicit and enables them to do what they're doing. And so it's not an issue of this one race or this one gender um, is more evil than another or um, has very unique mental health issues that cause them to be this way. Everyone is susceptible to, uh, to, to having hate in their heart, um, to struggling with, with their mental health. But the difference is someone who is Black in America and struggles with their mental health is incarcerated. Whereas someone who is white in America and has uh, struggles with their mental health they are not disciplined in any way. Um, and it sends a message to other people, especially other white men, white people, that this is okay and they can do this and they will never face any issue. And so that's, that's a serious issue. Even looking at it from a parenting standpoint, if you have a child who is 
engaging in harmful behavior and doesn't understand that this behavior is not okay, then they will continue harming other people. And it creates a very vicious cycle. And so I think it's important to think of America um, in that lens, but on a systemic level and think about America and the policies that we create over the years as this parent that has enabled this beast that we have today, which is mass extremism. And um, we're not la labeling that or addressing that correctly. We're, we're often focusing on very micro issues when really this is a, a very broad issue and we really need to tackle the issue of white supremacy in America in order to really get to the bottom of the extremism that is on the rise today. Um, so those are my thoughts on it. I think for sure that mental health support is needed. It should be destigmatized. Um, and we should stop enabling people. I think the presumption of innocence is important, but I also think it's going to be very difficult to talk about those things in the right lens if we're not dealing with the root of it, which is white supremacy. And that's what makes a lot of these issues super complicated. I agree with like almost everything Dania said. Um, I I wanted to like not take too much time because I um, appreciate that this panel is here for Women's Month, but I, I really wanted to draw specific attention to the Asian uh, American women who were killed because um, there's a lot of layers to unpack in terms of how the Asian American community responded. Um, and it's not, and it's something that I've noticed as a pattern in uh, Asian American responses to racial violence historically through our entire time as American citizens going all the way back to the 1800s. It's this, um, it's outrage and it's hurt, but it's also a little level of almost disbelief that this could happen to our community. And that part doesn't sit quite right with me because it's been happening to us forever. And I see in the Asian community a divide between certain people who really believe that there's um, safety and proximity to whiteness, I suppose is the best way to put it. And so this, um, if that is something that you truly believe as an Asian American, and then this happens, this kind of violence, it would be shocking to you. But as heartbreaking and as painful as it is to me, it wasn't surprising. And I think that that's something that I really wanted to implore the Asian community, whoever um, has been brought to thinking about this from the past week's events to like, think about more of what we have in common with other marginalized communities like the black community and the Muslim community and the Latino community, because there's a not insignificant amount of people in my community who would rather aspire to a safety that doesn't truly exist than recognize that there's a safety in recognizing our similarities with other people that share similar struggles. So, um, sorry, I'm getting emotional, but this is something that's been on my mind heavily this past week. So thank you for letting me say my piece. Thank you for speaking out. No, I just I would just add like a, a stat that I had read. It was um, that this, these hate crimes against Asian Americans have risen by 149 
percent since the 2020. And so keeping in mind that though you know it doesn't appear to be a crime or racially motivated, it's something that we need to be carefully examining because there's been escalating violence and it's all under disguise, just like Cassandra's saying, um, and everybody else on this panel basically that, that there is this white supremacy issue that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, you guys make uh, some very valid points. Um, and it's actually going into the next question. Um, Jasmine, you kind of spoke on it, the fact that uh, these shootings, they, they come at a time of uh, ongoing alarm over a rise in violence and hateful incidents against the people of Asian descent in the United States, uh, particularly amid the pandemic. Um, you know, over 3,700 racially motivated attacks towards the Asian community has been made uh, to, you know, during the pandemic. And so I know this is kind of a question that answers itself, <laughs> but um, I you know, want to hear your thoughts on it. And it's, do you think that the Trump administration has made a major impact on, on this by inciting violence against the Asian community? And then the second question would be, you know, how do we move past this? Jasmine, you kind of already talked about this, but uh, with the common sense legislation, but, you know, how do we truly move past this? How do, you know, what, what do we need to implement? How do we move forward? So I'm going to piggyback off of what Cassandra said about being able to unite um, those uh, minority or marginalized communities and coming together um, and not looking at our differences because we all have, you know, we have so much more in common. We care about our families. We, we come to this country to be able to build a better future for our families, to give us different opportunities. We all want to have a good job and we all want to provide meals and whatever, whatever it is that you think the American dream is for your family. That's what you come to this country for. And when you can't get that or you are looked at as different because of where you come from um, and you, you're seen as an outsider, that is not fair. And that is something that should not be tolerated in this country. This is supposed to be the, the, the country of opportunity. It's supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. And oftentimes, and this is a conversation that we had more recently. Um, we had Nicole Hannah-Jones um, um, for the Senate Black Legislative Staff um, Caucus. Um, and we talked about how um, white Americans make it you know, often sometimes hard for this country to live up to its founding principles, to its its true creed. You you talk about opportunity, you talk about land, but you won't allow people to be who they are in this country without feeling like if they get ahead of me, they are better than me. Or I have to take whatever they grab or whatever they have, I have to take it away from them because I don't have the same opportunities or they're taking opportunities away from me. So that's one of the things that I think is very, very important that we all come together, women's organizations, women's groups, women's movements, Black Lives Matter, um, Asian American communities, Latino communities, all of those communities should be able to come together to fight this beast of white supremacy. Because if black people try to do it on their own, Asian American people try to do it on their own, Latino people try to do it on their own, we're not gonna get anywhere. All of our voices are getting washed out and we're all saying, well, no, pick me. Our, our problem is more important than this problem. No, we are all facing the same, excuse my language, the same shit. Shit is horrible. If, if, if you are not a part of the patriarchy, you are being pushed to the back and you're told you need to wait your turn or you shouldn't have these opportunities or no, we want to make sure we get our, our children or our daughters or our sons here first and then you can wait 
or one of you can come, but the rest of you have to wait. Like we're, we, we are battling that to, like together. So why not come together to be able to fight that um, as, as a whole? Um, and then um, I think my other, my other comment is just, I, I, I really feel for um, the Asian American community because within, even within the black community, we all have our own struggles. Um, and, and how we address gun violence and how we address the wealth gap and, and how we address so many of the issues that we talk about daily. Um, like Cassandra said, like, there, like there's a difference uh, between people that have a closeness or they, you know, we deal with colorism. The, the closer you are to being white, the more you're, you're, you're seen as acceptable. And it, it's, it's just unfair. But um, my bigger, like just my larger point is that we need to come together to fight these problems um, in order to break the structure of uh, white supremacy in this country. Yeah, I think there's like some some practical things that we can do to do exactly that. Um, I think there's like a few different stakeholders here or major players here. So there's like the media companies and tech companies. Um, there's our education system and then community slash family. And um, I'll start first with community and family. I think, um, you know, now that I'm like older, I can recognize the ways that um, my family background and the values that were instilled in me were deliberate and directly shaped who I am and how I view the world. And so I think, um, you know, there's a few different players here aside from um, the government. Um, so obviously, yes, the government should pass legislation for gun control and, um, you know, take away policies that um, sort of uh, promote dehumanization and um, promote this wealth gap. Um, but looking at like the family unit or community unit, um, I think that one thing I'm very proud of, at least um, for my community, um, I, and I think it applies to most of the black community is there's like a, a sort of village mindset where we are, um, we're used to wanting to support each other and uplift each other. And yes, we do have our, our downfalls and, um, you know, we have, we have our own issues within our community. I think we're always, you know, even after all we've been through, we always speak up and try to um, speak against injustice. And I think that's a really important value that's been instilled in a lot of, um, of uh, families in America in particular. Um, speaking as a black woman, because, you know, this is what I know. So black, um, black families, um, but I don't think it has to be exclusive to us. And I don't think it is. And I, and I think especially now we're, when we're seeing a lot of people speak up in light of the George Floyd um, shoot murder um, and speaking up for our, our Asian friends and family. Um, I think that, you know, that plays a really important, important role, being able to instill values um, that this this isn't a um, crabs in a barrel mindset. We don't have to have that mindset. Um, um, instilling, instilling values like tolerance and appreciation for differences. Um, instilling values like critical thinking and, and, and viewership and um, really being able to uh, digest information in a way where um, you're able to still make decisions for yourself and you're not just um, regurgitating what you hear in the news. Um, so I think that's like one of the, the most important levels at the bottom. Um, next is the education level and really thinking about what 
our curriculum is teaching? Is it promoting white supremacy or not? Is it um, accurately um, portraying history? And do we have representation in our textbooks? Are our schools, is the climate uh, um, good for all students or is it only for white students? Are we tackling implicit bias in schools, those issues? And then for tech and media companies, I think especially in light of um, some of the misinformation that's being spread about COVID. Um, and as you said in your question, Ariana, the previous administration had a, a very, did play a large part in spreading misinformation and um, using harmful uh, rhetoric um, to, to spread just very hateful views that also aren't true um, about the, the origins of the virus and who to blame for the virus, which is, that again just goes back to um, sort of family values and, and thinking that we need to blame someone or, or scapegoat to get our way out of this issue when, yeah, I'm not even gonna go further further down that, but um, I think uh, tech and media companies have been doing, they can do more, but I think they've been doing a good job of um, starting to step up and sort of, you know, and deplatforming. Trump was a big step. Um, labeling uh, content as um, potentially having misinformation in it about the election and about COVID were uh, really major steps. And um, I think they can continue to do that. And um, I also think they should uh, try to step up a little bit more in terms of looking at the role that trolls are playing and, um, and, and sort of spreading this hate and making it think people think that it's uh, more popular of a view than it is. Um, I'm in a class right now where we're kind of studying that and looking at um, how it's been an issue since even before the 2016 election, but um, basically um, tech companies don't really have much incentive to do anything because um, you know the more traction they get to hateful posts and to misinformation means more people are on their platform and more people are seeing ads and so then they get money. And so, um, yeah, I think those three levels of, of groups can do a lot to, um, to really uh, impact this issue. And, and I think tech companies are starting to do that now, but I think those are tangible ways that we can really start dismantling the system of uh, white supremacy we have. All right, thank you guys. So, okay, we're gonna uh, move to the next question. Um, and so uh, the question is, what are your thoughts on Senator Joe Manchin, who in 2013 with Senator Pat Toomey, uh, both of whom have A ratings from the NRA, put forward a proposal that limited background checks to only gun purchases on the internet and gun shows. They're now getting in the way of Democrats um, with their comprehensive gun reform in the Biden administration. So how do you think uh, Democrats how do you think Democrats can go around, Manchin? I mean, I think that the Democrats really are not flexing enough that they have a majority in both the House and the Senate, and now they have the president, okay? That's where I'm going with this. I think that Republicans are and will continue to put their head in the sands and dig their heels in on 
popular cultural issues that they don't actually believe in in order to cover up their own personal gains and whatever they're doing at this late stage in whatever crisis they're having over their identity. I think something is being lost and that some of that is their ability to govern cooperatively. Um, and Democrats, I think, should recognize that reality and do what they can with the power that they've gotten, which is what the Republicans have had in the last four years. And then before that, they were able to obstruct Obama. So really, Democrats need to see this more as an opportunity than a hindrance. Um, yeah, that's really my takeaway on most of the issues, but on gun control in particular, on minimum wage, they had an opportunity to and they didn't. So I'm expecting them to do something about that soon. Uh, I really want them to address something about uh, student debt and that crisis. There's so many issues, you know, that they need to address and they have the power to. So the question isn't whether or not they can, to me at least, it's whether or not they will. <laughs> Um, everything Cassandra just said, um, but I'm, I'm also thinking about the fact that I think the Democrats are worried about what's going to happen in 2022. And that's why they're allowing Joe Manchin and some of these other Democrats to say, no, we need to be able to still talk to those people in middle of America that, you know, we oftentimes are, you know, don't get their vote or like the, the people that voted for Obama that also voted for Trump. That's what they're they're focusing on right now in this time, in this place. The, we're worrying about the Joe Manchins, we're worrying about the, uh, the Tammy Duckworths, we're worrying about the people that are in middle of America that have working class people in their communities, in their states that may agree with some of the, the, the platform like healthcare and some of those other things, but they also care about their second amendment rights. So I, I agree. I feel like we saw a lot of hypocrisy in the Trump administration. Um, we saw Mitch McConnell doing everything he possibly could when Obama was in office to keep Obama from being able to prosper as a president, right? And then we saw them, everything they said they wouldn't do when Obama was president, they did. I'm, I'm, I'm a curse. They did that shit. They did it. And they didn't care that they did it. And they continue to do it. And now they're like, you know what? We're going to just give you a hard time because, yes, this is going to help our constituents, but we're worrying about what's going to happen next year. So I think that's, you know, what Joe mentioned and some of those other Democrats are doing right now. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I just to kind of pick up what Cassandra was saying, like I was upset, you know, we spent all this time with the stimulus bill and, you know, taking away things and putting things in, you know, just to to please the Republicans, just for them not to to even vote for the bill. And that was really upsetting to me because I'm like, we could be very progressive, but we're choosing not to because we care a lot about how the Republicans feel. We Take we have hold over you know the house and the senate. It's time to really go in and and make those changes. And especially with you know President Biden, you know the things that you said that the, what you led with your platform. You know we need to see these changes now. It, you know we we've given you enough time. We've said you know hey you know it's it's only his first month. It's only his second month. You know but you can make a, a big difference within a couple of months as we can see. So I think it's it's definitely time for you know the House and the Senate to to really come together and you know 
make a difference, make a change, because we're we're tired of seeing you know the same old thing. And if not, then we will have to vote them out because it's time. Um, I think uh, also really quickly, I think what we talked about, uh, Cassandra, we were on the pod, we were on this podcast together. The filibuster. They are so worried about the filibuster and trying, they're thinking that the Republicans are going to use that as a tool to block progressive um, legislation. And we know that it's been done throughout history. It has been done to keep some of the most progressive legislation from passing. So we also have to think about that um, as we are preparing for midterms. Let that be something that um we keep in our minds as republicans are getting ready to start blocking some stuff yeah i definitely agree um so also as you guys know um the dems are they're calling for the expansion of uh background checks um but also uh, biden's being asked on whether or not he will introduce gun control legislation or take executive orders and a lot of people are pushing towards him issuing an executive order do you think that when he will issue an executive order and then what will be the backlash to that if he does I think we've seen a very conservative Joe Biden on the on the front of executive orders, um, especially considering what Cassandra brought up with, um, you know, Senator Schumer really wanted Joe Biden to go ahead, President Biden to go ahead and and cancel student debt by executive order. And Joe Biden said, I won't even do 10,000 by executive order. Right. Not the 50,000 that that they've been asking for, but even the 10. Um, and so I I don't see a Joe Biden, or I apologize, that's disrespectful, a President Biden who, who enacts an executive order for that purpose. I think um, there are going to be more Republicans in the coming days that are going to see the need for gun control in a moderate sense. Um, I am a proud supporter of the Second Amendment for law-abiding citizens that can pass background checks and can use their firearms in a safe manner. Um, my father was a police officer. I have many, many military members in my family. And so, you know, that's my background and where I come from. Um, but I don't see President Biden moving forward in that way. And I think if he were to, there would be a a massive backlash because where does the constitutional authority for that executive order come from? Um, and also we've talked a lot about precedent here, right? What precedent does that set for another Trump-like president to enact executive orders in a more conservative vein, right? And so I think that's probably what Joe Biden is thinking, probably what his, I'm sorry, President Biden, I have got to get used to it. President Biden is thinking and probably what his advisors are encouraging him to do is think about the precedent you're setting. And like Jasmine pointed out, an astute and I think very salient point right now, think about the midterms, think about middle America, think about the 20 somethings like us um, and like many of the people that I know who support gay rights, they support minorities, they support Black Lives Matters and Asian Americans and, and things like that, but they also want lower taxes, you know? So you have to, they, he's kind of trying to find the happy medium of, of trying to hit middle America, but also enact progressive ideals and support the Democrats that do, like Cassandra pointed out, have the majority in the House and the Senate and can enact that legislation. 
I think another important point to make is the difference between executive orders and legislation and the fact that, you know, as much of bluster as an executive order can really, you know, put forth and the media attention that will come around it and maybe what the general population of the United States might understand it to mean, in actuality, the executive order means much, much less than true legislation and um, anything that would meaningfully progress the way that we interpret the Second Amendment. So um, I think that might be another consideration that I think uh, President Biden, he's been in the game long enough to recognize the strengths and the weaknesses of that. And I don't think that he's willing to um, play a political point towards making it seem like he's doing something about this, um, gun violence when really it doesn't do as much. And I think as we've been discussing, we have a democratic majority in the House and the Senate. So we have a real shot at making real change. So that might be the gamble he's making. And to piggyback off that, if y'all don't mind, I think you you bring up a great point, Cassandra, of why not reserve that executive order and, and those actions for the most aggressive policies where he can't get the reach across the aisle that he might need from the more moderate Democrats? Why not keep that in your back pocket? That's probably a, a really strategic move and truly his advisors are wise to counsel him that way. Okay, we're going to pivot the conversation. Uh, <laughs> thank you, guys. Um, so as you guys know, like I said, I love to, I'm, I'm always on Twitter, so I love to read tweets. And so uh, recently, um, I saw a tweet where it said 253 bills across 43 states have been introduced to restrict voting access, despite little evidence of voter fraud. We've had two mass shootings in the last week and only offer thoughts and prayers. In America, black and brown people voting is considered more dangerous than guns. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I think Georgia just passed today uh, one or two of those bills that restricted voter access. Uh, right on the tail end of that election that turned Georgia blue. So not that I can necessarily draw exactly a line there, but you know exactly what I'm trying to say. So um, I, I think that it's, it, it's very clearly a response by uh, Republican lawmakers, recognizing that they have lost any kind of true appeal by policy. So on the front end, they're trying to create a stir in ways that people will care about, you know, culture wars for five minutes online. But on the back end, they're recognizing that they can't grasp power unless they gerrymander or create rules that make it much more difficult for people who are minorities or who are poorer or have less access to transportation can vote. So um, I, I think that we are already very cognizant of it because we knew going into this, since all of us are you know, paying attention to these things, uh, we knew it was coming. So what, we, what the question is now is what are we going to be able to do about it in response? Um, I think we're probably already going to see some people bringing lawsuits against it, but we also know we have a very inhospitable Supreme Court at the moment. So there might be strategic questions about how safe that is as well. The fact that Georgia is making it a misdemeanor for you to serve drinks and food to people that are standing in line to vote. It, it blows my mind. We all know that depending on whoever is in 
the White House or in the Senate or in the House at the time, there's going to be some type of consequences to that election. Elections do have consequences. We know that. But this I, I, I think about the fact like everything that happened in Georgia, Georgia allowed itself to go blue. They didn't deal with anything that happened with Trump when Trump was trying to call them out and be aggressive with their officials. They knew that because of how it was trending with Warnock and Ossoff, they were like, you know what? We're just going to let it play out the way it's going to play out. And then we're going to come back and make sure that these things are taken, taken care of so we don't have to worry about like this stuff ever again. It, it blows my mind. People, I know my grandmother doesn't vote in person. She does all of her stuff absentee. What about the, the grandmother that is going to stand in line for hours and hours and hours and not have anything to eat or drink with her, um, you know, whenever she's like trying to vote? The people that are just out of the kindness of their heart coming to help support people, no matter what you're voting, whether you're voting Democratic or Republican, they're coming to just encourage you and say, we're proud of you for getting out to exercise your right to vote. That is insane. Like it, it, it is incredibly ridiculous, but we're going to see that trend even more. Whenever Democrats fight back or use the tools that they have to say, you know what, that is very racist. That is voter suppression. That is gerrymandering. Like whenever you're you're calling them out on stuff and they lose an election because of it, they're like, okay, well, we'll let y'all go ahead and do what y'all think y'all gonna do. But we're gonna go ahead and come over here and write all these laws that's gonna make it virtually impossible for people that are felons, people that have now got their rights back to vote to make it impossible for them to vote. Or if you can't get off work to vote, I mean, that's not our that's not our fault you're just going to not going to be able to vote in this election. It's ridiculous. And it it's, it's comical. And it's very like, it's just, it's stupid. I don't like, I just don't understand why people are not more upset about it. Like I know the people in Georgia are like, this is some bullshit, but like everyday Americans should be very, very upset about this. This shit is crazy. Okay. I'm done. <laughs> no, I, I definitely agree. Um, you know, it was, it was disheartening to, you know, see the because I'm from Georgia, uh, born and raised. And so to see that, you know, all of the hard work that Stacey Abrams, you know, put, and Stacey Abrams and a lot of other, uh, you know, voter suppression uh, uh, groups, you know, anti-voter suppression groups, the hard work that they put in, you know, to be able to combat voter suppression and, and for these, you know, and, you know, still, you know, fighting for, you know, I still get emails today saying, you know, uh, reach out to your, your representative, tell them this, you know, and for this to happen, it, it's definitely like a slap in the face. Um, but then and also, you know, they were talking about a lot of major corporations, uh, you know, putting money toward these, putting money toward these bills, supporting these bills. And so now, you know, I'm thinking, you know, putting, we need to start putting our money where our mouth is in a sense, because if these, if we allow these corporations to continue, you know, backing these made this, this major legislation that it ultimately affects us, we need to stop giving money to them, you know? And I think that that's something else that, that really needs to be done. You know, when corporations, they see that, okay, you know, joints, you know, they were saying Coca-Cola was a part of this. 
if George is, you know, stop saying, you know, stop drinking Coca-Cola, then they'll see, you know, then they'll start you wanting know, to back, you know, legislation that that works for their constituents or the people that, you know, their consumers. Um, so that's just my little two piece in that. I just, it was, it was very disheartening to see that. And, you know, there's only one Stacey Abrams, but there's a million and one anti-voter suppression groups that are, you know, working towards the efforts of combating voter suppression. But it's, it's, it's seeing that it's always an uphill battle. We have to continue to fight and fight and fight and fight. Um, and, and it shouldn't be like that. So that's just, you know. I drink Pepsi anyway, so. Well, my question is just, you know, just a general question, but also maybe one that we can each specifically think about is like, what is the playbook that Stacey Abrams has like created for these kind of um, outreach programs that combat voter suppression? And what kind of work could we do as individuals or in our capacity as future lawyers or in our pro bono hours, there's a lot of creative room for us to do the furtherance of certain work like that. Um, I personally haven't done a lot of looking into it, but I, I feel as if someone of her work would put that out there because it's very important work. And I think it's best benefit is when everyone is able to access it. Yeah, and I think I would just add that, um, I think getting more involved in local politics like can play a, a really big role on some of these issues. Um, and that's something that I, I learned in college. And I'm not sure if it's like, um, something that a lot of uh, younger people are as aware of. I know there's a lot of like focus on um, the primary election, but um, I think especially in college, like getting involved, I went to school in Alabama. And so like getting involved in local politics there and seeing um, just like how many issues actually go before like local council that you wouldn't realize were, um, were governed by them is like a really important issue as well. So um, yeah, just like trying to, um, and I know there's a lot of barriers to, to even getting, um, getting involved, but I think the more that we um, pay attention to and like push back on some of those bills on the local level and get people into office on the local level who share our same mindset, that's like, I think a really important and, and helpful way to combating some of the, the voter suppression on the state level. Yeah, I, I uh, agree with that as well. Um, I think, well, I, I personally, you know, I, I, that's a good question, Cassandra. I think um, I definitely would have to kind of think back and see when, what exactly can I do to help? But then also, you know, I'll call up Stacey Abrams because, you know, we're best friends and just see, <laughs> um, you know, the playbook. <laughs> just kidding. But Stacey, if you're watching this, make sure to give me a call. Um <laughs> And okay, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue to pivot. Um, and so, I don't know if you know, you guys know this, but uh, Senator Duckworth and Senator uh, Hrano, they they uh, said they would vote against uh, presidential Biden's. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, President Biden's nominees amid the frustration over the lack of Asian American and Pacific Islander representation um, and broader concerns about the diversity in his cabinet. Uh, however, you know that quickly changed because uh, you know. The White House seeking to cool the tensions, they agreed to add an Asian, uh, a senior Asian American and Pacific Islander liaison, and they pledged to elevate diverse voices to the highest levels of government. And um, so, my question to you guys is: Do you think that this is enough? Was that enough? You know, just to say, you know, we're going to bring one person on uh, 
for them to, to stop the fight? Uh, do you think that they should continue the fight for more um, Asian American and uh, Pacific Islander representation in the pre presidential cabinet? So I'll just say um, um, any thoughts that I am talking about tonight are my own. I do not speak on the behalf of my boss. Um, I do not speak for her. I'm not a mouthpiece for her, but I am very proud of her because we constantly see in this country that when when things are when people aren't calling out things, just stuff just continues to go on like nothing is like happening. And when you ha you have a responsibility when you're in positions like she is in to say, you know what, this isn't enough. America is diverse. We are a melting pot of so many different et um, ethnic uh, groups, cultures, values, so many different things make us who we are. And we are all uh, woven together to be able to say this is the best country on, like, on earth. And when government doesn't look like that, that's a problem because oftentimes we are seeing there are too many people that are making laws for people that do not look like them. So when you're you're passing uh, criminal justice bills, you're you're often seeing that black and brown communities are the most vulnerable people that are on the receiving end of those bills. You're seeing that black men and black women are being criminalized for mental health issues or for uh, drug abuse issues or alcoholism or different things like that. You're seeing those type of things that are happening when you don't have people that are at the table to say, you know what, instead of giving them jail time, why not give them um, uh, where they are sentenced to a program, where they have to do um, X amount of hours at a rehabilitation center or something like that. I think she did what was right. You have to call a spade a spade and say, you know what? It's not enough. We need more representation. And I am very, very proud of her for sticking to her guns. I, of course, am not Asian American and, and I'm not a minority. So I speak on this as, as someone coming from obviously a different perspective, but I think, you know, especially recently we've seen how Asian Americans in particular are actually a minority group that has continued to be punished. So like affirmative action, right. Has benefited certain minority groups and has actually punished other minority groups. Um, for example, Asian Americans, wasn't there a lawsuit against Harvard for, for penalizing Asian Americans um, in the application process. And so I think um, in particular, you know, if we're going to be elevating minority groups, which affirmative action is doing and other programs are doing, I think it needs to be done on an equal basis, if that makes sense. So if, if we're creating a minority or a diversity um, committee or whatever it may be. And if President Biden is going to say, I'm going to elevate minority groups to the highest levels of government, it should be Latinos, Asian Americans, African Americans, all minority groups on an equal basis because they all deserve that equal representation. Um, and so that would be my two cents of it is, no, I don't think it's enough to say we're going to we're going to elevate one individual to this high level. I think if we're going to say we're going to do it collectively on an even basis, I don't think this is necessarily what he's saying, but if he's saying we're going to hire two white men and two African-American women, then we need to have two Asian-Americans and two Latinos. And, you know, I think it needs to be more equal if we're going to call it equality and diversity for equality and diversity's sake. It needs to truly be what it is. Cause I don't think at this point in America, we've actually seen that. I think 
you know, like with Black Lives Matters, that's been very vocal and they've done a great job of elevating that cause. But like Cassandra said, needing to really work together, Muslim Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans to bring equality for all minority groups. And I'm not seeing that at this point, if that makes sense. Trying to kind of bring that thought all the way circular at home. <laughs> well, I I felt a little bit weird about the situation with um, uh, Senator Duckworth and Hirono, but I, I actually do believe that the uh, Biden administration has been pretty good about having a diverse uh, cabinet and keeping the hires um, within the administration. Actually, like they, they've been reaching out to a lot of good uh, people from different backgrounds. Like Deb Holland got uh, selected to be, what was it, Secretary of the Department of the Interior, which is the first time that a Native American person is going to be the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I think that that's pretty substantial uh, movement in the right direction. Um, so I, I don't think necessarily that there's not been a move. I, I think that Biden's team has been very cognizant and aware of how um, white supremacy was very highlighted in the previous administration. And so he's being very careful to make moves that will uh, distance him from that while still not necessarily having to structurally change how the government is right now because He's also dealing with putting out fires everywhere due to COVID and multiple other crises. So I, I do think that he is making a good faith effort to diversify. And that might be part of why I felt a little bit odd about um, using this moment of collective grief as a moment to point out that there was a lack of representation. It was true. And I think that it was ultimately a good thing that we got someone who is Asian American in a higher position in the government because we do need um, all these people that we can with these diverse backgrounds. But um, I think there was a nuanced discussion to be had there. And I don't think necessarily it was the best move at the time. That's all. Okay, so we are going to move ahead. I'm trying to get everyone off. I know everyone has things to do because as you know, women, we multitask and get the job done. Um, okay. So the last uh, two questions that I have uh, is, okay. So um, the secretary, the secretary of home uh, homeland said that the uh, U.S. Southern border is closed and the news comes days after the uh, house representative signed off on two bills that seek to clear a path for certain uh, migrants to receive permanent resident status. And so the closure is in response to a surge of people at the southern border and officials needing time to rebuild the legal processes for entry into the U.S. that was dismantled, uh, dismantled under the Trump administration. So my question to you is, uh, should the uh, should the Biden administration uh, bear the blame for the immigration crisis right now? Um, and should they have prepared for a surge in uh, migrants after the uh, Trump administration left office? Can anyone else not hear her?
Does anyone else want to speak on this as we're uh... really quickly? I think I don't think any president in the initial portion of his or her, I will say her because I think Kamala Harris has broken boundaries on that front. Um, I don't think any president in his or her first few months can take any of the blame or really any of the credit for really much of what happens aside from what they specifically do with their members of Congress, right? So um, do I think he's to blame? No. <laughs> um, anyone that does, I think, is, is I think would probably have a, a vested interest in saying that, that he that he is to blame. And also, do I think that he should have expected a rush of migrants? Probably yes, because the borders were closed for so long, right? And like there was such an inhibition to being able to actually enter the country with DACA and those protections being repealed. Um, and just, I think, too, the rhetoric of of what the migrant status was under the Trump administration. So I think unequivocally, yes, he should have considered that this might be something that would cause an issue at the beginning of his administration. But really, I mean, admittedly, I am fairly Republican, but I, I would say what was President Biden to do? You know, like he he couldn't have just taken control from from President Trump and said, OK, like I've got to run this the way that I need to. And so I think he's he's handling it the best way that he can. And he's directing the members of his administration to do what he genuinely believes are in the best interest of the country. And it's really just a precarious situation that he was put in because you had all of these protections repealed and all of these people now are seeking refugee status. So um, it's just it's it's really a, he's between a rock and a hard place. There was really no way to go in, in my view. Okay, and our uh, second to last question would be, um, as you guys know, Biden's recently announced that Vice President uh, Kamala Harris will be the White House point of person on immigration issues at the nation's southern border. And so I guess my question would be, was it wise for President Biden to place um, uh, Vice President Harris front and center on one of the most uh, politically risky issues the White House faces with the uh, 2028 on the horizon? Possibly, but I think that there's also a little bit of a buffer between himself and the vice president, right? So if he gives a task that's monumentally difficult to her and she messes up, that it could be something that's compartmentalized to uh, her office and the work that she does. Um, I, I don't think that that's exactly what the thought process is behind it. I honestly think that uh, Kamala Harris is an incredibly capable uh person. Uh, she's also a Howard alum, which is great. Um, and I, I, I think that she has demonstrated that even if there are certain things like the fact that she has this prosecutorial background and that, you know, causes some people to hesitate on her, it means that she is used to action and decisiveness. And I think a crisis of this magnitude and dealing with such heavy issues might require something like that. So I don't think it was a bad choice. I definitely agree. Um, you know, outside of her, uh, 
uh, being a Howard woman and a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha, um, Kamala has experience dealing with a lot of this stuff. Um, as an attorney, you have to be very strategic. You have to be very decisive and you have to have all of the facts going um, into making the decisions that need to be made. And I think she's done a great job as a senator doing that. I mean, oftentimes, like, you know, throughout the uh, campaign trail um, when she was running for president and when she uh, was running for vice president, um, she got a lot of like people called her out on some of the like the, the mistakes she made when she was attorney general of California. But I think from those mistakes that that were made, she also learned a lesson that is now going to set her up for success in this current role as vice president, but also leading the charge to deal with immigration in this country. I definitely agree. I just want to reiterate the fact that I didn't say it was a bad choice. I was just asking the question. <laughs> um, and so to end off um, this podcast, thank you so much, Michael Taylor, for allowing me to moderate. And thank you guys so much for coming on. This was been one of, you know, one of the best panels that I've been on. And I'm not saying that's because we're all women, but, you know, we always do a little bit better. Um, but, uh, you know, as you were saying, you know, that there's been so many women that have paved the way for us to enter into the field of politics. Um, and so we're so grateful for that. And so um, I'm always a big believer in, you know, sharing some type of advice to people that, that want to be in the same spaces as we are. And so if you guys give me one uh, piece of advice that you would give to someone younger, a, a younger woman that would like to be into uh, or to go into the political field, what would that be? Go visit City Hall. Uh, I wish I'd done that when I was younger. Um, I really didn't even think about it until I was in uh, law school and started like even like um, looking into constitutional law. And then I took municipal law as an elective just because it was interested. And I realized that so much of the law and so much of your interaction with it can be local. But to me, in my mind, it was all the Capitol building and the White House. So. If I had one thing I could tell myself as I was younger, it would be go visit your local government and see what you could find out. Hi. Oh, sorry, were you going to go down? Go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, for those who are uh, planning on either going to law school or entering politics, I think what's really important um, for me at least, is that I had a very strong sense of self before getting into those environments. And I knew um, the best ways to take care of my health and my mental health. And I came up with what I would want for my ideal world before I ever got into politics or got into law school. And so I think for me, that's been really helpful for, um, you know, it's a, it's a very tough, uh, tough industry. And um, it's, it's, uh, you're not going to get a lot of that support once you're in it um, and you're going to have to work really hard to find it. And so I think, you know, developing that strength and that tough skin really, you know, a while before you, you really get into it, it'll it'll pay a long way once you're in it. Um, I think the, the 
there, there's a couple pieces to the, the one answer that I have. Um, I always think about the fact that a lot of women, since we're you know in Women's History Month, a lot of us deal with um, imposter syndrome, right? Where we feel like um, because we haven't, we're probably the first in our families or the first person that we know to kind of like go off into these spaces um, that we can't really do certain things because we just don't have that background or we just haven't seen people like us be able to do it or because they're, we don't have the support around us to really kind of like do what it is that we want that it's impossible to do. But one of my mentors told me something and it, it sticks with me to this day. If you have, and this may be, you know, for anybody, if you have the courage of a mediocre white man, you can do whatever it is that you want to do in this country. Okay. They, men do whatever they want to do. They may not be qualified to do it. They may not have had the prerequisites to do it. They're like, you know what? All I have is a high school degree, but I'm still going to apply to be president. And you just be like, what? Do it. Do whatever it is that you want to do. Do not be afraid to do it. Nobody can tell you that you can't do anything. You went to school. You got a degree. You ran for whatever office. Even if you didn't get it the first time, do it again. If you didn't get the job the first time, apply again. Do whatever it takes for you to be able to get where you want to go and be unapologetic about it. Because guess what? There's always going to be somebody that may not be as qualified as you, that may not be as smart as you, that may not have the experience that you have, that's going to apply for it and may get it just off the fact that they took the chance. So be fearless in your pursuit to do whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's run for office, whether it's leave your hometown to go work in D.C., which is very, very hard. I'm not going to lie and say it. Living in D.C. is hard, but you can do it. Find your friend group, find people that are like-minded like you, and just do it. And that's all I got to say. I think um, the best piece of advice is not necessarily a piece of advice I've ever gotten, but something that I have witnessed. Uh, the firm that I work at right now, we're, we're three attorneys and we're about seven people, I guess seven. Um, and the lesson that I've learned is that you need to be cognizant of the people that you keep around you. Because if the people around you are not aspiring to the level of excellence that you are, they will bring you down. And you can only achieve by being surrounded by those that want to achieve too. And I've seen that most in um, the owner of my firm. Her name is Denise. Uh, and her now law partner, who's my boss, Josh, they are constantly pushing one another to be better and she is constantly, Denise is constantly trying to see how we as a firm can improve and how us as a team of attorneys can achieve more and be more creative and advocate more for our clients. And, and I admire that so much. And it truly has shown me she is relentless and she will, she will not allow someone to stay in her life or in the firm who is not making us better. And I really respect that in her because it's a hard thing to do to cut people out when they are not taking you to the next level. I don't mean taking you to the next level in a capitalist sense, but if they are depleting you, you will run dry. So be cognizant of who you surround yourself with. Make it people that lift you higher, encourage you to do more, be more, and that want more for you. And you will constantly be able to achieve what the rest of these women have said, just 
absolute greatness. Can you hear me? Why don't you drop it in the chat? We'll have someone read it out. Well, well, while we're waiting for Maria to type it out, um, I guess my advice would be if you can believe it, you can achieve it. If you whatever you put your mind to, you can do. And my mom would always say, um, being smart is not having, you know, that mental capability. Being smart is seeing what me needs to be done and doing it expeditiously. So if you if you see some, a change that needs to happen in your community, go for it. You know, figure out what you need to do to be able to make that change um, and, and work towards it. You know, things don't just you know, some things are just handed to us <laughs> and some things aren't. But if, if you have that opportunity to make a difference in someone else's community or make a difference in your own community, take that chance. Um, also, be willing to reach out to other people. I think a lot of times for me specifically, you know, I uh, have this thing of where I don't reach out until I really need help. You know, and I think that that's my downfall because there's so many people that are willing and able to to help you um, and they just don't know that you're struggling. They don't know what's going on or they don't know if you're even interested in something that they're doing. You know, so just reaching out saying, you know, hey, I'm really interested in doing this. Uh, and nine times out of 10, no one's going to turn you down because people love to talk about themselves. <laughs> so, um, you know, just reaching out uh, and just knowing and then also being confident in who you are, because people can under when you're confident in yourself, then nothing else. No one else is going to, uh, you know, turn well, anything that someone else does to you will not affect you because you're so confident in, in your in your, um, you know, capacity and your mental being, then you're gonna be fine. So that's mine. Let me see. Uh, OK, so. Uh, Okay, so uh, she said, "Do the best you can. Do the best you can in whatever you do, and uh, and don't let anyone take the credit for your work. When they do, undermine you because because of they will because they will keep going. Because when you get to the end, it'll just be it'll be you empowering other women to go after you. Pass the baton. I love that. That was good." <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning in uh, the Political Mike episode 36, Woman Takeover. <laughs> thank you again, Michael Taylor, for allowing us to be here. And um, we look forward to seeing the next episode. Hopefully he'll let us take over again. <laughs> All right, you guys have a great night. Thanks so much, guys.